Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 8? And as always, if you're new with us this morning, we welcome you. And just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary Chapel, currently in chapter 8. And uh, just by way of review a little bit, the focus of chapter 8 is really Jesus' statement in verse 12. That becomes the focal point of the entire chapter where he, he declared himself to be the great I am. Now, that's the name of God. We know that from Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. That's how God identified himself. I am that I am, the great I am. Jesus calling himself the great I am. And then he follows that with a description uh, of himself. He said, the light of the world. He came into a world of darkness. The darkness didn't like it, but the darkness couldn't do anything about it. Chapter 1. Uh, could not comprehend it, could not extinguish it, really. And the idea is that Jesus came as the light of the world, uh, as God in human form, bringing to this world the light of God's truth, a world full of Satan's lies, deceptions, false doctrines, and all. And so Jesus made it a point. In fact, John builds, builds his gospel around seven I am statements. And we've been working our way through that. You find one right here in John 8, verse 12. But he was constantly declaring his divinity. He wasn't just another wonderful spiritual leader and teacher come down the pike of human history. He never allowed himself to be lumped together with any other religious teacher. He always made statements, absolutely true, of course, that set him apart. Uh, call yourself God. Well, you know, unless you're Shirley MacLaine, uh, you know, that's a, that sets you apart talked about Shirley last week if you weren't here. Um, but, uh, but his constant declarations of divinity as being the uh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, put him at odds with the Pharisees, which he is confronting in chapter 8, but of course uh, put him in conflict with all the other religious leaders of Israel. They hated the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't believe what he said about himself. They were against him. We're only about six months from the cross at this point, so now they're really ramping up their attempts to trap him and kill him. But uh, this led to an explosive confrontation. The fact that he kept declaring his divinity uh, led to an explosive confrontation that we are studying in chapter 8, where Jesus, they called Jesus the product of fornication, verse 41. Uh, and he called them children of the devil, verse 44. Let's pick it up in verse 37. Jesus said, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do, you do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You were of your father, the devil." and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth or for the, of the truth, does not stand for the truth 
for uh, there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Wow. Uh, the Lord didn't beat around the bush, did he? I was telling first service, apparently he didn't read that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, he just laid it out, man. He just was, you know, today so many pastors trying to tiptoe around the tough issues so they don't, you know, they don't play, they want to placate instead of penetrate, they want to offend anybody. Jesus Christ just said it like it was. In verse 46, when the Lord said, which of you convicts me of sin? Uh, it was, of course, a reference to his sinless life. There's uh, people that challenge it. Liberal Christians challenge, well, they're not really Christians, but they call themselves Christians. Liberals in the church challenge whether or not Jesus was really sinless. And they claim that he couldn't have been. It's impossible. Well, with man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. God, all things are possible. And uh, the Bible is very clear on the sinless life of Jesus Christ. I'll just read these. You can write down the references. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.22, Who committed Jesus Christ, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him, the Father made the Son, uh, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. First John 3, verse 5. And you know that he, Jesus Christ, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Now that statement in First John 3, verse 5, in him there is no sin, is first of all reference to the fact that Jesus Christ was born without original sin. If he had been born of an earthly father, since the sin nature passes from the father to the children, in Adam we all die, not in Eve, okay? In Adam we all die. The idea is that the sin nature passed from the father to the children. Jesus Christ had an earthly mother, Mary. He did not have an earthly father. Joseph adopted him, was not his real father. God was his father. And as such, he was born into this world without original sin. But then the Bible teaches that he lived his entire life on earth without ever sinning. Now that's important, guys, because if, if Jesus Christ was going to be a sacrifice for our sins, it would have to be the innocent dying for the guilty. Sinners can't die for sinners. This is an essential doctrine. Those who deny it can't be saved. You can't believe with all your heart that Christ was a sinner who died for sinners. He was the innocent dying for the guilty. And this is an essential doctrine of salvation. If he was going to be our sacrifice for our sins as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, John 1, it would mean that he would have to be a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's how Peter describes him in 1 Peter 1.19, the uh, animals that were brought to God for sacrifice had to be without blemish, without spot. They had to be without any uh, birth defects, and they had to be without any acquired uh, you know, scars or things like that. 
It was just God's way of saying in the Old Covenant that when the Son of God would come to die for our sins, because animal sacrifices, they only temporarily covered their sins. They couldn't take them away. Jesus Christ, of course, the Lamb of God, would take away our sins when he offered himself on Calvary's cross. But to do that, of course, he would have to be born without sin, virgin born. That's why he was virgin born. He didn't have an earthly father. And then he would live, had to live a sinless life, which the Bible affirms. And Jesus says right here, he's challenging these guys. Okay, which one of you can point to any sin in my life? You know, you can't. He had to make stuff up about it. And of course, the only sacrifice the father would accept on behalf of us, the only sacrifice that could be made for our sins, penal substitution, another was punished in our place, was the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who fit that description. So John 8, verse 48, Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say, excuse me, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Okay, it's really getting heated. I pointed this out before. It's really getting heated now, okay? I mean, chapter 8, we see this confrontation that the, uh, these guys, they're, they're just full of hatred, okay? Full of hatred and uh, towards him. And uh, this, this, by the way, was a real put-up. Uh, to call a Jew a Samaritan, uh, let alone to call a Jew a demon-possessed Samaritan. One author put it this way, said, calling Jesus a Samaritan was the most cutting insult one Jew could, Jew could hurl at another. By calling Jesus a Samaritan, the Jewish leaders were in effect labeling him a false teacher because he obviously did not agree with their interpretation of the law and a traitor to Israel, since he allegedly sided with Israel's bitter enemies, the Samaritans. In their blindness, they were confident that he must be an enemy of God, end quote. Now, the Samaritans are a pretty important uh, group, not super important, but you're going to fully understand, uh, you know, um, what they were all about when you read about them. And, you know, Jesus made it a point to go up to Samaria when at a time when the Jews they had to go north into the Galilee. They they went, uh, first of all, they went east, crossed the Jordan, went up north through Perea, and then crossed over as they came, became adjacent to the Galilee. They bypassed Samaria altogether because they, they had come to believe by this point in their history, even the dirt of Samaria was defiled. You didn't want to get any of it on you. Jesus, of course, was no respecter of men. He loved everybody. Went up to Samaria and there met a woman by the well, a woman of Samaria, led her to himself. She got saved. And a whole uh, movement started there in Samaria uh, of, of people getting saved, okay? Um, Jesus even made a Samaritan the uh, hero of one of his parables, right? The Good Samaritan. So you really need to understand who these folks were. Go online, access our study out of John 4, around verse 9. And we get into this in the history. It's important to know if you are you know, going to be a serious New Testament student. But verse 49, Jesus answered, they said, well, we know it. You're a Samaritan and you got a demon. He said, I don't, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. You see, back in chapter 5, verse 23, Jesus had said that the father had decreed that all should honor the son just as they honor the father, he said. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. 
Now, Jesus' point is simple. The Father, Son, and of course the Holy Spirit together make up one God, Yahweh, okay? Together they are co-equal members of this trinity. Uh, they make up not three gods, but one God. And Jesus is saying to these guys, you know, you honor the Father, and yet his Son is here. You don't honor me. How could you not, if I'm equal with the Father, and we said this in chapter eighteen, uh, chapter 5, verse 18, everywhere he went, he claimed equality with God. John began his gospel by saying, you know, that he was face-to-face -face with God, the Word, which in Greek means he was eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball with, on an equal level with God. He was God, verse 3. John 1. The idea is that Jesus is saying, look, you, you, your position doesn't even make sense. You're so filled with hatred. You can't honor the Father, we're God's kids, children, and not honor the Son, who is equal with the Father, who came from the Father. It's kind of like today with the Jehovah's Witnesses. They claim to honor Yahweh, right? They call him Jehovah. Yet they don't honor his Son, the way they, they say that Jesus is a mighty God, but not almighty Jehovah God. Jesus was a created being made by Jehovah. Well, now you've made him less than what he really is. You're not honoring him for who he is. Mormons the same way, a little different take. They honor Father God, which they define as, you know, having once been a man and evolved into Godhood. Um, but they made Jesus the brother of Lucifer. Okay, and Lucifer was the bad apple. Jesus remained faithful, and you know that. But they don't honor the Son as they honor the Father. Neither of these, and there's others, of course. And Jesus is saying right here that these Jewish leaders were doing the same thing. They, they were claiming that God was their Father. They honored God the Father, the Yahweh, but didn't honor His Son when He showed up to give Him the words that the Father had sent Jesus to deliver. Verse 50, He said, And I don't seek... My own glory, Jesus said. There is one who seeks glory and judges. When Jesus said, I do, not, I do not seek my own glory, he was saying in part that he didn't come for glory his first visit. His first coming was not about him receiving glory. In other words, he didn't come to reign. Of course, a king would receive glory. The second time he comes, he will come with glory and power. In fact, you can read the end of uh, read uh, around uh, verse uh, 30, 31 of uh, of Matthew twenty four, where he talks about when I come the second time, I'm going to light the sky up with my second coming glory. I will come establish my kingdom. I will reign over the whole world from Jerusalem. Then I will receive glory. But right now I have not come to receive glory. I've come to die. I've come to humble myself to become the lamb who would take away the sin of the world. And that's what he is saying. But he also goes on to imply, really though, the glory he was seeking was not for himself, but for the Father. That's why I've come. How is he going to glorify the Father? Two ways primarily. First of all, to faithfully represent the Father to this world. I mean, nobody has seen God at any time, John says in his gospel. Chapter 1. But the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He has made Him manifest, right? Philip said the night before the crucifixion, Lord, show us the Father will be satisfied. Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you so long that you would ask me, show me the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. 
That's the idea, okay? Paul put it even more dramatically in Colossians 1, around verse 15. He called Jesus Christ the image of the invisible God. In the Greek, that was a word that was used of a press that bore the face of Caesar, and they would stamp coins, gold, silver, and, and all, and they would impress upon the coin the image of Caesar. What Paul is saying is that God the Father stamped his image on flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. If you've seen Jesus, and we see him through the pages of Scripture, you know what the Father is like, okay? So Jesus faithfully represented his Father to this world, and also he glorified the Father by finishing the work the Father gave him to do. John 17, I have glorified your name, Father. Uh, I have done all that you've given me to do. And of course, then the next day he will go to the cross and finish the work, uh, and so on. So that's very important, okay? The Pharisees, though, Jesus said, I haven't come to get glory from men. The only glory I seek is from my Father, who loves me, and I want to honor him. Now, of course, that was a slam against the Pharisees, who were all about doing everything to get glory from man. In fact, Jesus really lambasted them in chapter 5, verses 41 to 44, when he said, I don't receive honor from men. I'm not looking for glory from man. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not, do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? That's the problem with too many pastors and churches today. They are looking for honor from men and not really from God. If the so many of these guys on TV, it's all about people, you know, acknowledging them and even worshiping them. They're they wouldn't say it like that, but celebrity pastors, right? Always looking for recognition and honor and prestige. Paul said in Galatians 1, verse 10, if I seek honor from men, if I seek to, be, to get glory from men, I'm no longer a servant of Christ. I've now become a man pleaser. And that's the problem with too many pastors today trying to build big churches. Jesus, we just pointed out, Jesus wasn't trying to build a big ministry by talking nice to everybody. If, if, if you needed encouragement, he encouraged you. If you, were a if you were a prostitute or a tax collector, if you were self-righteous and pompous and you needed to be rebuked like a Pharisee, he rebuked you out of love. He wanted people to get right with God. Too many pastors today, that's not the issue. They don't want to placate. Excuse me. They don't want to penetrate with their words. Their preach. They want to placate. And that's always the actions of a man pleaser. And uh, Paul said, if I seek to please men, I'm no longer a servant of Christ. John 8, 51. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Now, of course, guys, the Bible talks about two different kinds of death, physical death and spiritual death. Here, Jesus is referring to spiritual death. What he's saying is if people believe the gospel that he came to present to the world, of course, it was all about him. If people believed his words, the words that he came to present the gospel, they would pass from death to life spiritually. John 5, 24, he said this clearly. 
and be saved from future judgment in hell, which the Bible calls the second death. You can read about the second death, Revelation 2, verse 11, 20, verses 6 uh, and 14, and Revelation 21, verse 8. So the first death is physical death. The second death is spiritual. It only applies to unbelievers because as Christians, when we accepted Christ, uh, we again pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. We are forever saved. Uh, and you know what? Physical death, well, most people die physically. So what do you mean? We most people. Last time I checked, the statistics were pretty ironclad. Ten out of the ten people die. Well, there is a generation that's not going to see death of Christians. We're going to be raptured, right? We're going to be taken off this planet instantaneously, transformed, given our glorified bodies. And when that happens, of course, we'll be with the Lord forever in his presence. Uh, so we won't see death. That's my That gets my vote that everybody in this room who loves the Lord, we're going to all go into rapture and we won't even have to save money on a casket, uh, that kind of thing, right? But um, the first death, Bible thought, is physical death. Second death, spiritual death in hell, lake of fire, called the second death, okay? Now, the Pharisees were worldly men. Very religious, but still very lost. We see these kind of folks all over the place today around the world. You have people that are very religious, and yet they are not, they don't have a relationship with God. They're not saved. Uh, Jesus is talking to some right here in John 8. But uh, the, the, the Pharisees were worldly men. Uh, they would tell, tell you they were deeply spiritual. Jesus knew better. And they were worldly men. And because they were worldly, they thought, they heard and thought like worldly men. So when Jesus said this, these words in verse 51, they went ballistic. They went ballistic and um, assumed that he was talking, that Jesus was speaking of physical death when he told them that if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Now they're really fuming at him. Verse 52, then the Jews said to him, now we know you of a demon. We, were, we weren't sure before this statement. Now we know for sure. Uh, Abraham is dead, and the prophets, uh, and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets are dead? Whom do you make yourself out to be? In other words, they can't believe the arrogance of this carpenter from Nazareth. Is the idea? I mean, who does this guy think he is? I mean, Father Abraham never said at any time, "You believe my words, I'll keep you from ever dying physically." None of the great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, Daniel, none of them ever promised people if they listened to their words that they would, you know, they would save them from physical death. They'd never die. Again, they said to him, who do you think you are? They demanded to know what he thought. Well, Jesus basically answered in verse 54, you know, it doesn't matter what, who I think I am. Only matters what the Father thinks of me. If I honor myself, I honor, my honor is nothing. It is the Father who honors me. And by this point, the Father from heaven on three different occasions had said about the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father from heaven gave three times his stamp of authenticity and validated the ministry of Christ that he was honoring the Father. But of course, they didn't receive that. It is my Father who honors me of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, and he's talking about a deep personal knowledge, 
They knew who Yahweh was. They, they had religion. They didn't have a relationship, okay? If I say, you know, you don't know him, and if I say I didn't know him, I'd be a liar like you, all right? But I do know him and keep his word. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, guys, we're not done with the chapter, but we're done for this morning in going any further. We'll finish chapter 8 next time, because before it's over with, they pick up stones to kill him. This confrontation got so heated, okay? But right here, he says to them something that floored them and something that I want to get into since Jesus brought it up, and it's pretty important. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. When did Abraham see Jesus' day? And just what was that day? We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. When did Abraham see Jesus' day? Well, first of all, Abraham saw future events that God promised the same way all of us see future events that God has promised in a, us in his word. It's called prophecy. We see it through the eyes of faith. We don't see it through the eyes of flesh as if it's already happened right in front of us. When God gives us a promise in his word, we don't see it literally yet, but we see it through the eyes of faith because if God said it, it's a done deal. You could take it to the bank, as they say, right? In Hebrews chapter 11, the great Hall of Faith chapter, uh, the writer says this very thing. He says, verse 13, as he talks about all these great examples of faith throughout history. He said, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. And so they had the promises of God, but it was never a fulfillment or they were never fulfilled while they were on the earth. They died clinging to those promises, but having seen them afar off. By faith. Abraham saw the promises of God to him by faith, even though he never actually saw the main person that God promised. Now, how can I put this? God made Abraham a promise that was so incredible about one particular individual. We know him as Messiah. And Jesus, Abraham never actually saw the Messiah born. But he had the eyes of faith. In his mind, it was already a done deal. Okay? Having seen these promises afar off, we're assured of them. Uh, you know, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, starts out faith is the. Um, faith is. Um, oh my goodness, my mind. Uh, it's the, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. That's what faith is. God said it, I believe it, right? So these all look forward to the promises in the future. They saw them through the eyes of faith. But more specifically, guys, this is what I want to zero in on for the rest of our time this morning. I believe that when Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced in seeing the Lord's day, I believe it was a reference to Genesis chapter 22, when the Lord commanded Abraham to take his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah, and offer him there to God. You know, in Psalm 40, verse 7, uh, Jesus speaking said, The volume of the book is written of me. By saying that, he was saying the entire Old Testament was about Jesus in shadow, type, prophecy, and so on. 
Jesus made it even clearer to the Pharisees in John 5, verse 39, when he said to these religious men, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but it is they that testify of me, yet you refuse to come to me that I might give you this life. The whole Bible speaks of Christ. The New Testament openly and directly, the Old Testament in type and shadow. Guys, let me just say this to you. Genesis 22 is one of the greatest typological chapters in the Bible to demonstrate this very truth, how that God will communicate divine truth, light, through everyday circumstances and people that act out the prophecies that are coming going to be fulfilled in the future. Let me just say this to you. If I was asked to list the 10 greatest chapters in the Bible, I think Genesis 22 would be on my list. That's how incredible it is. Why don't you turn there? I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning, part of our time next week on Genesis 22. There is so much here that we need to understand. It warrants our time. So Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Notice he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac. Right away that stumbles us because we know Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. The problem, guys, is that Ishmael was a work of the flesh where, where Abraham and Sarah tried to help God out, right? God made them a promise in their old age. She was 65, he was 75. It says to them, you're going to have a son. They were past the age of childbearing. But God promised them a miracle child, all right? Now, 12 years passes. There's no child yet. She's not even pregnant. I mean, you know, we're not getting any younger here, Lord. Maybe God wants us to help him out. Be careful. You don't help God out in fulfilling his word. Abraham and Sarah helped God out. Sarah gave uh, Abraham her handmaiden, uh, handmaiden Hagar to raise up a, a, a child through. It was acceptable back in those days if a wife was barren. And of course, she bore him Ishmael. And the Jewish people are still dealing with the consequences of that little misguided attempt to this day because the uh, Ishmael became the father of the Arab nations. But God didn't even acknowledge Ishmael. Now, he did take care of him. I'm not saying he didn't acknowledge him at all. He did make sure he was taken care of. But when it comes to serving God, God does not even acknowledge the works of our flesh. That's why it's important as Christians and churches that whenever we set out to do something for God, we make sure that the Spirit of God is leading. Because, you know, there's a lot of stuff we could do for the Lord, good stuff, you know, good ministries. But if God is not leading us in those endeavors, He's not. we're not getting rewards for it. He's not even acknowledging it. And that's why he didn't, he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, Ishmael, work of the flesh, Isaac, was the son of promise. 
He was a work of the Spirit, a miracle child, given to a couple that was well past the age of child-rearing. By the time he was born, Abraham was, what, 99? 100, Sarah was 90, okay? Total miracle. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. This is the first time the word love appears in the Bible. And notice it's not speaking about the love of a man for a woman or the love of a woman for a man. It's speaking of the love of a father for his son. And yes, it's speaking about Abraham's love for his son Isaac. But the love that is primarily in view here is the love of God the Father for his son Jesus Christ. In fact, don't miss this. This whole chapter transcends Abraham and Isaac and becomes prophetic. We'll talk about that more as we progress. Verse 2 again. Then he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah. You know where Mount Moriah is? Calvary. Golgotha. The very same mount that 2,000 years later another father would offer his only begotten son, the son whom he loved, on that very mount for the sins of the world. The word Moriah in Hebrew means foreseen of Jehovah. Foreseen of Jehovah. In other words, the cross was not some hastily pieced together plan B when Adam blew it. It was the very plan of redemption God had in place from the beginning of the creation. From the very first moment God began to create this physical universe, in his mind, Jesus was already on that cross, of Calvary's cross, dying for our sins because he knew we were going to blow it. And the plan of redemption was already in place. We know that from Revelation 13, verse 8, which tells us Jesus was a lamb slain from the foundation of of the world, in other words, in the mind of God, it was already a done deal. It was already a, Jesus was already on Calvary's cross when the Father began to speak, "Let there be light." You know, at second day, it's third day. Fourth, he already had the plan of salvation, redemption in place. The Hebrew word translated "offer" is a Hebrew word that means to lift up. Take him to Mount Moriah and there offer him. The Hebrew means to lift up. And so God tells Abraham to lift Isaac up upon Mount Moriah as an offering, which is reminiscent of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in John 12, verses 32 and 33, when Jesus said, If I am lifted up from the earth, that would be from Mount Moriah. I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying what death he would die. Death of the cross. Again, verse 2, Genesis 22. Then he said, Take now your son. Your only son, Isaac. Imagine you're reading this for the first time. Okay, let me read it to you again. God speaking. Now, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, imagine you're Abraham, hearing that from God, okay? I can't help but wonder what he must have been thinking at that moment. I mean, think about this, right? Did he think, what is going on here, Lord? Okay, Isaac is the son you promised me. Isaac is the son we waited 25 years for. And now you tell me to kill him? 
Is, is this some kind of sick joke you're playing on me? What is this all about? First of all, it tells us that sometimes God will do things in our lives. Tell us to do things. Put us through certain trials or adversities. That at the time we can't figure out what he is doing. We're prone maybe to question his judgment or his love for us. First of all, understand something. Nobody loves you more than God Almighty. And he never plays jokes, let alone sick jokes on any of his kids. But there are times when God will tell us to do things that don't seem to make sense. This is one of those times for Abraham. What you do is you always obey God. Even if you don't fully understand what he's up to. J.B. Phillips, who gave us the translation of the New Testament, said, if God was small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. So I'm just wondering, you know, I'm also wondering if when God said this, if in Abraham's heart, even for a brief moment, you know, I think it's just kind of fly through your thinking, okay, did for just a brief second, okay, uh, given you Isaac, I want you to take him three days' journey to Mount Moriah and kill him. I'm wondering, if just for a, a brief second, he thought, I'm not doing that. I'm out of here. Kind of like Jonah ran away when God told him what to do, right? Did Abraham think about running, hiding from God? First of all, you can't hide from God, right? I mean, read Psalm 139. If I send into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. I mean, no matter where I go, Lord, you're there. I mean, a great theologian I used to read said at one point, you can run, but you can't hide. I think his name started with T, but you get the idea, right? You can, Mr. T, Rocky, come on, all right? <laughs> Balboa, you can run, but you can't hide. Okay, just, all right. You're looking at me with these blank stares. Okay. Do I have to explain... See, my stories go back so far. I, last week was Star Wars. None of you know. Most of you didn't know what I was talking about. All right. But, um, you know, we don't get any of that from the story, though. That he was furious with God, that he, I'm getting out of here, I'm going to run. None of that. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of it, and took two of his young servants, men, with him, and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He rose early. He, he, right away the next day, he gets right up early and starts to do what God told him to do. In other words, he didn't delay, didn't drag his feet, not like Lot did when God told him to get out of Sodom before God bombed the place, right? The angels came, dragged his feet, you know, most of his family died because Lot wasn't a man of conviction. He was a worldly guy, saved but worldly, okay? Um, Abraham got up early the next day. He started right out to do what God had commanded. Now, listen, to say Abraham obeyed with enthusiasm might be overstating it. But we definitely don't see any weeping on Abraham's part, no begging God to change his mind. God tells him to go to Mount Moriah and there offer Isaac to him. And Abraham got up early and began his journey just as God told him to do. Now you read that and you go, 
uh, he sounds like he's a robot here. Uh, he looks kind of like he's a, how could he obey God so unemotionally, so robotically? Well, look, I don't think Abraham acted like a robot. In other words, like he had no feeling. I'm sure he was experiencing a good amount of anxiety on his way to Mount Moriah, knowing what he would have to do to his son once he got there. It's just that in the 30 years, guys, listen now, in the 30 years since God first appeared to him in Genesis 12 and called him away from his homeland, the earth of the Chaldees, from his family, to start a walk of faith with God that would encompass the rest of his life. 30 years has now passed. And guess what? When you walk with God, and I mean walk with God, for 30 years, you're going to grow, aren't you? I mean, you read Abraham's early life experiences, chapters 12 and 20 of Genesis. He failed. His faith failed. He, uh, but he got up. He learned from his lapses of faith. And now we see 30 years later that his faith had grown substantially. And um, at this point, he was now operating out of a deep abiding faith in the promises and in the faithfulness of God. Here's what you have to remember. Abraham is called the father of the faithful. An example of someone, and he grew into this. By this time in his life, he became an example to all of us of faith, trusting God, and so on. Here's what you need to understand, and I'm sure most of you know this. You remember when God appeared to him in chapter 15. Abraham's now upset. He's got all this wealth. He's got no heir to leave it to. It's all going to go to his firstborn servant, Eliezer. And he's upset about that. And God says, he appeared to him, said, Abraham, your wealth is not going to go to your servant. Takes him outside, has him look up into the, in the night sky, and says, can you count the stars up in the heavens? Oh, no, it's too many. Well, your descendants are going to be like those stars. Innumerable. You're not going to be able to count them for how many descendants I'm going to give you. All through this son, I have promised you. Who wasn't born yet at that time? Okay. And here's the thing. At this point, God says, now take Isaac, take him three days to Mount Moriah and kill him. Here's the thing. At this point in Isaac's life, he had no children. In fact, he wasn't even married yet. So Abraham, no doubt, is thinking to himself, well, God, look, I don't understand. But you know what? You're God, not me. If you want me to kill this kid, this man, I'll do it. But Lord, you promised me that through this son, I would have so many descendants that would be like the stars of heaven. So if you want me to kill him, I will. That's it's up to you. I'll obey what you say. But know this, if you're going to fulfill that promise and give me all these descendants through this one kid, you're, you want me to kill him, you're going to have to raise him from the dead. That was the faith that's pretty much saved Abraham. Read Romans 4. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Now. It's not like you're stretching a little bit. Come on, you've really, that, that was really going through Abraham's mind? God, I'll kill him, but you're going to have to raise him from the dead? You don't have to take my word for it. I'll read it to you out of Hebrews 11, verses 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said, and Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Hold on to that. I'll come back to it in just a minute. Back in Genesis 22, verse 4. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off, Moriah, even as God the Father had lifted up his eyes in eternity past and saw Calvary, the place where his son would be lifted up, saw it afar off. So now does Abraham, who was a type of the father in this chapter. You know, Paul the Apostle says something about the gospel that we need to bring in here. I will have you turn to this. First Corinthians 15. Because this gets into what I want to really focus on, um, part of it. But in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4, Paul is giving us the gospel in a very succinct way. I want to read it to you. He says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, moreover, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now when Paul says that, according to the Scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. New Testament wasn't finished yet. He was involved in writing some of it at that time. He was talking about our Old Testament Scriptures. The question is, where in the Old Testament did it predict Messiah would die and resurrect the third day? Most scholars believe it was right here in Genesis 22, by type, by type. Look, it took Abraham three days to get to Mount Moriah. Now listen, you've got to think like a Jewish person, a rabbi. When God told Abraham he wanted him to take him three days' journey to Moriah and kill him, when God told him that, even before he got to Moriah, in the mind of Abraham, Isaac was dead. He, just, he was dead. God told me to kill him. It hasn't happened yet, but in Abraham's mind, at that moment, he was dead. He went the three days' journey to Mount Moriah, began to offer Isaac. God stopped him. At that point, he was resurrected in the mind of Abraham. Very important that you understand that this is what the writer to the Hebrews meant when he said that Abraham believed God was able to raise up Isaac. In other words, God, you want me to kill him, I'll do it. Um, but you know what? You're going to fulfill your promise. You're going to have to raise him from the dead because uh, he hasn't got any kids yet, not even married. God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him. Abraham received Isaac back from the dead, so to speak. He received him in a figurative sense. Figuratively, no, he had not died. He was not dead those three days' journey to Moriah. When God stopped Abraham from offering Isaac, he was resurrected, brought back to life in a figurative sense is the idea. This is what was on the mind of Abraham. All right, This is what he was experiencing. Genesis 22, verse 5. 
And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. The word lad, there is the same Hebrew word used in verse 3 for the two young men that accompanied Abraham and Isaac to Mount Moriah. The Hebrew word, guys, was used of men in their 20s and 30s. I bring this up because all of the Sunday school pictures of Abraham taking Isaac by the hand and walking him up Mount Moriah, uh, all the pictures, all the paintings depict Isaac about eight or nine years old. No doubt the artists are picking up on the word lad in verse 5, thinking that mean, it means a, a young boy, when the Hebrew word actually means a young man. I believe Isaac was in his early 30s, very possibly 33, the very age Jesus Christ was when he walked up that same mount to be sacrificed for our sins. Genesis 22, verse 5, And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. Uh, the lad and I will go yonder. Listen. And worship and come back to you. Again, it's obvious that Abraham believed God was going to raise Isaac from the dead if the Lord made him go through with this command to kill Isaac there on Mount Moriah, that God was going to raise him from the dead. And he told these young servants, we'll be back. We're going to go and worship, and uh, we'll both come back, okay? So fully convinced God, if you want me to kill him, I will. You're going to have to raise him from the dead. Now, let's, let's be clear about one thing as we wind this down. God never intended to have Abraham go through with sacrificing Isaac to him. God never asked for human sacrifice ever in the Bible at any time. The only time he asked for a human sacrifice was right here to test Abraham's faith and his devotion to God, but then didn't have him go through with it. Because God never, ever wanted human sacrifice. When Israel fell into great apostasy in the Old Testament period, and they began to worship the Baals and the Ashtoreths, these pagan deities, at one point, they began to sacrifice their children, their infant children, to these pagan deities. And God spoke to them through the prophet saying, this is such a heinous thing. I never at any time ever commanded you to sacrifice your children to me, nor did it ever come into my mind. But God came down on them hard because they were offering human sacrifice. God never asked that. God didn't want it. Something else that's significant in Genesis 22, verse 5, just briefly, because it's here and i got to talk to you about it. Something else that's significant, Genesis 22, verse 5, in the first place, excuse me, this is the first place in the Bible where the word worship appears. Worship. In hermeneutics, which is the science of Bible interpretation, there is a law called the law of first mention. What is it? It's a law that states whenever a major concept appears first in the Bible, worship, atonement, marriage, study that passage because it becomes the prototype for understanding that concept throughout the entire Bible. This is the first place the word worship appears in the Bible. And guys, it's significant because as we study it, it we realize that the word worship here is not associated with singing as we often associate it. Is associated with sacrifice. Sacrifice. Something David affirmed years later in 1 Chronicles 
21, verse 24, when he expressed the heart of true worship, he said, as he was talking about offering God an offering, which was worship, I will not give to my God an offering that costs me nothing. If worship is going to be legitimate, it has to cost us something. Mary of Bethany and John 12 uh, portrayed and uh, and uh, was uh, you know emblematic of true worship when he gave when she gave the alabaster flask of fragrant oil of spikenard when she broke it open and poured it on Jesus preparing his body for burial that was probably her dowry that she was her parents were gone that was probably her dowry that she was saving if any man ever wanted to marry her in that culture you had to give a man a dowry by giving it up to anoint the body of Jesus she was pretty much forfeiting ever having a family, uh, a marriage or a family, she gave up quite a bit to worship her Savior. You say, well, what do I give up? I mean, I want to worship, but what is it costing me? What does God want from me? Romans 12, verse 1, God wants you as a living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, listen, this is your spiritual act of worship. All right, let's finish. Genesis 22, verse 6, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. So Isaac carried the wood for the offering on his back up Mount Moriah, the same way Jesus did 2,000 years later when he carried the cross up that very mount on his back. Verse 6, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, uh, laid it on Isaiah. Uh, excuse me, on Isaac, his son. He took the fire in his hand, a knife, and and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, "My father." He said, "Here I am, my son." Then he said, "Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering?" You see, Isaac understood they were going to worship God. He also understood that that meant a sacrifice had to be offered which involved blood. He wanted to know, well, just where is, we got the fire, we got the wood, but where's the lamb for the sacrifice, right? This is the first place in the Old Testament where the word lamb appears. You know where the first place in the New Testament appears? We just read it. John 1, Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Genesis 22, 7 and 8. Isaac again asked, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Don't miss this. Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so the two of them went together. I checked every translation I own yesterday. And they have variations of this. I think the King James Version was the only one that got it really right. The only translation that really put its finger on exactly what Abraham was saying and what he believed. Here's what the King James Version says. And Abraham said, my son, listen to me now. God will provide himself a lamb. Wow. Abraham was sharing the gospel with his son Isaac. Remember we talked about Galatians 3, verse 8? How Abraham knew the gospel? Paul said, Abraham knew the gospel. He knew he was acting out prophecy. You say, really? I don't see it. Well, we haven't gotten to it yet. 
By the time this chapter is over, you will know. Abraham knew the gospel. He knew he was acting out prophecy. I mean, this is an incredible chapter to study. Dovetails with John 8. Come on back next week and I'll show you how we know Abraham knew the gospel. How he came to learn the gospel as we finish John 8. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, your word is true. We thank you that if we walk in this light, we'll never, we'll never stumble in darkness. Lord, I guess the biggest thing to bring from this chapter so far, or at least what we talked about this morning, is to realize that you are calling all of us as your people to be living sacrifices. Lord, give us grace that we only do those things that honor you, that we only represent you faithfully to the people of this world, that we finish all the work you've given us to do, and that we live lives of worship, that, Lord, that our lives are offered to you every day on the sacrifice, excuse me, on the altar of sacrifice as a form of worship. We ask you, Lord, to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.